Good morning, Redeemer. My name is uh, Chad, and I'm a deacon here, and it is my uh, privilege today to bring you God's Word. Um, Today, we are bringing our series of Galatians to a close, uh, at the very end of Galatians 6, and we come to the final words that the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Galatia. A good signature used to be an important thing to have. Now, with the little digital iPad thing, you can kind of just, it's really hard to write with your index finger. Uh, In fact, we don't really even teach cursive today. A signature might be, by the time your grandkids are here, a thing of the past. Because you could just put your thumbprint, and your thumbprint will identify you, and that is your signature. A few signatures have had real historical impact. Uh, Do you remember studying uh, in U.S. history the Declaration of Independence? And at the end of that rather short document, there's a list of about 56 names, all in beautiful 18th century cursive when they taught those things. And right in the middle at the top of that list of names is one name that stands out, a name that is synonymous with the word signature. Do you know what it is? John Hancock. If you go look at it, because I looked at it to prepare, because you always got to check your notes. You got to check your ideas, right? So Wikipedia, the internet, Google has all the answers. It's a beautiful signature, and it's big, and it's, it's a gorgeous handwriting, and it's got this flourish underneath it that looks like a work of art, and a little circle with an H in it. Wow. Why did he do that? You do, do you, can you remember anyone else that signed it? Benjamin Franklin? John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. That's like it, right? But he meant what he said. And so he put it on there so that all would see and know that he was completely committed to the cause. Approximately 48 or 49 AD, 1950, 1970 years ago, whatever that is, The Apostle Paul penned this letter to the Galatians, perhaps the most explosive, significant letter ever written, perhaps the earliest book of the New Testament written just within a couple decades of the gospel events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And when the letter was nearly complete, Paul, the apostle who often used a secretary to write his letters as he dictated, he picks up the pen with his own hand and brings his letter to a conclusion. And he says in verse 11, which we'll read in a moment uh, fully, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And the the, the point of this, like a text message uh, to a friend in all capital letters is, I really mean this. Galatians is widely considered to be the clearest, simplest, boldest, most pugnacious statement of the gospel that Paul makes and is perhaps in the New Testament. Here it is, the gospel, an undiluted, unvarnished form, the heart of what Paul preaches, the heart of his theology. The New Testament scholar Raymond Brown says that no one can fault the Paul of Galatians for making theology dull. Amen? It's like coffee as it's meant to be. Three espresso shots on top of 10 ounces of dark roast, straight unmixed, no cream, no sugar. (laughs) 
Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said at table with others, he said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I am betrothed. It is my Katie von Bora. Catherine von Bora was an ex-nun and Martin Luther, an ex-monk, they had fallen in love after the gospel changed their life and become man and wife and they had quite a marriage and they had had quite a romance. And what Paul or what Luther is saying here about uh, is saying there about the book of Galatians is that he had a great romance with this letter because it had exploded and it changed his life and gave him the undiluted freedom of the gospel. In fact, he would go on to write two commentaries on it. Uh, sitting on my shelf, totaling about 860 pages in the English translation. And Luther loved it. And I think he loved it because it had his attitude, his, uh, uh, yeah, attitude with a capital A, right? In your face, aggressive. This is what the gospel is and his love to battle for it. So Paul brings all of that passion and pugnacity right to the end of his letter to close in this final postscript, which I invite you to stand today as we read uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, says, verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for speaking to us clearly through Scripture. We thank you for revealing your heart, your glorious gospel, the plan to redeem your people that you you conceived of before you created the world, Lord, and which you uh, brought uh, to fruition through Christ our Lord. I pray that you would help us to understand the Scriptures, help us to love the gospel with the passion that Paul here declares and loves the gospel. And we pray that you would be exalted and worshiped as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This closing paragraph is remarkable among Paul's letters, partly because he cannot let go the message that he has had on his mind since the moment he began it. Right up to the very end, he has maintained all the verve and punch with which he began the letter. And furthermore, these verses sum up. Uh, They give the essence of the whole letter. In fact, as John Stott says, even further of this passage, it gives us the very essence of Christianity. What I want to do today is to point you to the central truth of this passage. I want to set it uh, in center stage and then frame it by pulling forward uh, from Galatians all the threads of the letter into one kind of grand finale to let Paul's letter uh, uh, stand before us and speak to us. 
Here is the key verse as I see it. Verse uh, 14, right in the middle of the paragraph, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say here is the final thing that Paul wants us to hear. And I want to draw your attention specifically to a key, to the key verb and to a key noun, the key word, the key object here in this verse. The verb is boast. And the noun, the object is the cross. The word boast here means in Greek to boast. No secrets. It means to gloat. It means to brag. It's what lots of of folks wearing yellow and blue were doing yesterday at our own stadium. To take pride verbally, loudly, boastfully. The old King James uses the word glory, to glory in, to exalt, to lift up, to find significance. And the cross here stands in clear contrast to all the other nouns, the, the thing words that we see in this passage. It's the cross versus the flesh, the cross versus circumcision, the cross versus the law, the cross versus the world. In fact, it's the cross versus everything that would compete with it. And the word, this word, the cross, points us to Christ, for it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it stands for the whole meaning, uh, uh, both the events in time and space, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the glorious ascension of Christ. And it stands for all that it means, but it points to the central thing. Just like Jesus was on a cross between thieves, the cross is there in the middle, in the center, the main picture of the gospel. Death on a cross. Paul is saying that people by nature are boasters. A lot of our talk is probably either boasting or complaining. When we're not complaining, we're boasting. When we're not boasting, we're complaining. We glory in stuff, don't we? If we have a great meal, we love to boast in it. A great restaurant, and those are good things to boast in. But we don't just boast in small things. We do so. We boast ultimately. In other words, we are all investing our lives with something uh, that is, has utter and total significance. The thing which we most love, we most enjoy, that we glory in, it makes us happy. It's the thing which makes us glad, Right? Boasting can't be hidden from others. It lights up the face, the eyes pick up, the cheeks raise, the, the, the edges of our mouths move up and backwards, right? right? We smile. Boasting comes out of us when we compliment, when we brag, and we do this at the very core of our being. Everything about us is pointing with this massive arrow sign towards the thing that in which we boast the most. In Galatia, the threat... Uh, uh, to the cross was from this combination of law, circumcision, the flesh, and the world. And it was a strange combination because on the one hand, it was religious, the law and circumcision. But on the other hand, it was a worldly desire to put on a good showing and to not be persecuted. Paul says in contrast to all of that, he says, I will boast 
only in the cross. None of these things compare at all. I think it's not just the object of Paul's boasting that's different. It's the sense of his boasting. He, he uh, impugns the motives of his opponents. He says that they boast to put on a good show. They boast uh, 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 literally the leaders to gloat and brag about how many followers that they have. But Paul's boasting is very different. It's not even a humble brag. It's not even a, a uh, um, oh, Uh, I want to thank God and Jesus and my family for this win today kind of brag. It has the sense of a man who has realized the emptiness of everything else under the sun, that God had invaded his life and showed him even the vanity of all the religious commands that he had been keeping that he thought made him right with God. And he has been awakened to the grace of God and shown that only the cross, only the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ saves. Amen? And nothing else can compete with Christ and His cross for our affections. And Paul, because of that, because Paul had been radically saved, because Paul's life had been turned upside down, Paul will fight tooth and nail for the truth of the pure gospel. To all who threaten it, to all who distort it, to all who dilute dilute it with all other requirements, he will go to the mat. In the time that remains, I just want to highlight and lift up the cross as glorious because we're called here to boast in and to glory in the cross. And we can do that not because we're making something of nothing, but we do that because the cross itself is glorious. The cross of Christ is glorious and it has its own glory and it has its own magnetic power to draw to Christ through the cross those who look on it by faith. So I want to point out five ways in which the cross is glorious. I know you're like, "Uh uh-oh. We're just now getting started? I promise to be as quick as possible to lift up each of these. First, uh, the cross is glorious to offend. Wow, that's probably not what you were expecting. Yes, the cross is glorious to offend. It offended in Paul's day. It offends in our day. It offended Paul's opponents. Before Paul was converted, it offended Paul. In our day, it offends every opponent of the gospel. But before we were brought to Christ, it offended us. In our fight against sin, even as believers, where we struggle with doubting, where we struggle with our sin, it yet still offends us, does it not? I think of the ways in which I can so quickly get proud of of my disciplines, right? Like five days of good spiritual spiritual disciplines. At the end of that, man, sometimes I can be so proud. It's so quickly how uh, surprising, how surprisingly quick quick it is that that I feel that I can stand on my own apart from the cross. You know what I'm talking about. There are multiple senses of the word offend, though. The two that are relevant, I think, are uh, uh, offend means, of course, the practical of- sense of offense, to, to irritate, uh, to annoy, uh, to anger, or to affect disagreeably. And one person uh, ag- 
agitating against another intentionally or unintentionally. And the second sense of offense is, is to violate, to transgress, to go on offense. I do not mean here to recommend the word offend, offend in the first sense. We as Christians are not called to be irritating. We do not have a mission to be annoying or enraging in our culture or disagreeable just to be disagreeable. That's not our mission. That's not our strategy. In fact, in the New Testament, everywhere, the message of the apostles is that we're called to live quiet lives and to point to the gospel by loving our neighbors and lifting up and pointing to Jesus. But it is, in fact, this message about the cross that does the second thing. It intentionally violates our human will and our plans and our intentions. And because of that, it will irritate. It will annoy, and it will make angry. No one was more angry before, the, before he came to Christ than Paul. Enraged that someone could believe that God would save through a crucified Messiah. Enraged that people were saying that you could belong to God's people without keeping the law. Paul was so enraged, he didn't, he didn't write letters to the editor Paul didn't write nasty emails. Paul went from city to city, mobilizing people to root out, to find Christians in their home, drag them into the streets, bring them before the courts, persecute them to the point that in, uh, is it Acts uh, 7, 8 there, that Paul is standing uh, there while they stone Stephen. How does the cross offend? Well, I think we see it in our text today. First, the cross offends our religious sensibilities. It is those, verse 12, who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Paul has made this point over and over again in his letter. And it's because there is within us all an ever-present, always lurking sense in human beings that we can approach God if our works are good, if our practices are pious, and if our behavior is right. Or maybe just simply, as in our culture today, if we're nice. God loves nice people. I'm nice to my neighbors. I'm nice to the, to the lady at the grocery store. I'm nice, uh, I'm nice at work. Nice, 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 nice. But God does not save us because we are nice. Amen. This isn't just a Jewish thing. It's an everybody thing. Right? Keeping the rules isn't just a matter of Old Testament Judaizers. This is everywhere rampant. This is in humans cannot be, uh, not, humans cannot not care about righteousness. There is always something that humans believe this is right and everyone needs to do it in order to be justified in our eyes or the government's eyes or in our school's eyes or in God's eyes or in our neighbor's eyes. There's always a need to do right and to be justified. And all religions other than Christianity and all distortions of Christianity have this in common, that they insist that you come to God by doing the right things. 
been listening to a course of lectures on Islam because I realized I, I don't know that much about it. I don't know uh, what, what uh, Muslims actually believe. So I've been listening to it. And, and, and the second, third lecture goes through the five pillars of Islam. And the five pillars of Islam are the following. First, a good Muslim must always daily sincerely recite the Muslim profession of faith. Second, a, Muslim, a good Muslim must pray five times a day. A Muslim must pay alms and tithes. A Muslim must fast during the month of Ramadan. A Muslim at some point in their life must go on Hajj. They must make a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca and worship there. Those are the five pillars. Not, they're not the implications. They're not, they're not a side note. That's, that is what you're called to do. And if you are, Allah might be merciful to you. This is true in distortions of Christianity if you listen closely, right? Every distortion of Christianity uh, may start out with good intentions, but very quickly uh, can become, you can't do this. All good Christians don't go to the movie theater. All good Christians don't do X, Y, or Z. All good Christians send their kids to Christian school. All good Christians listen only to this music. There, there can become very quickly a, a set of requirements that are they're kind of slipped under the door. And what Paul is saying in this letter is all of those things compete with the cross of Christ. They must be tore down. We must set them in their place. We cannot approach God in this way. The second way the cross offends is that it offends our sense of how good we are because sin goes much deeper. Paul says they've picked out this one thing, circumcision, but verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. This is the point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. The entire point of the Sermon on the Mount is, is even if you merely mechanically do the thing you're asked to do, the human heart is sinful and wicked and against God. And in the heart, so what Jesus said, do not practice your righteousness before men, but do it what? In secret. He says that about our prayer. He says that about, he says that about our fasting because we're always in danger of putting on a good show because our sin goes deeper. Our sin affects our motives to even do the right thing. Third, the cross offends our good taste of how God might save us. Right? The cross is not a display of raw power. The cross is not a display of awesome, overwhelming strength before which you must bow, right? That's how the Romans built an empire. That's the principles of modern warfare. Over all the enemy with every weapon you have, bring them to heel, put them on their, their faces. But the cross is a symbol of weakness. The cross is a man on two timbers with nails through his hands and his feet. How can this save? Galatians 2.13, which we've read in our service already today, Christ, we pull this forward, Galatians 2.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The cross is glorious to offend us. So we're going to see why that is in particular so glorious. Because it addresses those things. All the ways in which we are trying to make ourselves right. And what it's going to do because it offends us. It's just going to free us. 
Second, the cross is glorious to justify. Since we are not made right with God or cannot approach God on the basis of our good works, our religious practices, or even our niceness, even if our niceness is based on the Old Testament, even if our good obedience is based on on God's Word, it cannot make us right with God. The answer leaps off the page. It's right in front of us. It is the cross, the thing which all the other things in this, in this passage are contrasted. Only one thing can make us right before a holy God, and that is faith in the crucified Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. This is the main message of Galatians, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. And Christ can justify us because He was cursed and crucified for us. Do you see that? The, part of the offense of the cross is, is understanding that what happened to Christ is what was deserving to us. That the wages of sin is death. But to repeat Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is the entire argument of the letter. We could just read it. We could just read Galatians. I listened the other day to Galatians on my way to work over a couple days. It's like a half hour. It's the most explosive truth in like 30 to 35 minutes of reading. The cross is glorious to justify us. Third, the cross is glorious to free us. Because it offends us, it can free us. Because it goes on offense against all the ways in which we would justify ourselves, it frees us from all our need to justify ourselves. Amen? When we understand that in the wisdom of God we are saved by grace alone, it produces a true liberty from the heart. Christ said, come unto unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon upon you for it it is light. Forget the other word. It is light. Amen. It is a comfort to know that none of your obedience saves you but flows from the work of God in your heart. That this week, when you have that argument with your wife standing at the sink after dinner, even though you'd prayed that morning, <laughs> right? You felt especially holy and spiritual because you had prayed and read your Bible. And yet, even though that happened, you have a fight. Like, come on, amen. When you can't put things together, when you can't seem to please anyone else, you are accepted and beloved in Christ. Amen? And nothing can can rob you of that. There uh, is a glorious old hymn that that we sang at the Sojourn Conference, Oh, love that will not let me go. You cannot let go. You cannot be let go of the love of God if you are in Christ. Not a fight with your spouse. Not a lack of Bible reading today. Not 
not uh, because you've missed your goal to memorize Scripture this week or, or to even invite all your neighbors in. You are not justified by any of those things, but only by what Christ has done. The cross is glorious to free us, Galatians 5. And this is, uh, this is one of the key messages of Paul throughout the book of Galatians. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To be free is to be redeemed. It is to be bought, to be purchased out of slavery and into liberty. And Paul says it's something that we must fight for. We're free in four ways. We're free from the law. Circumcision counts for nothing. We're free from any rules that we might make. Verse 15, note this. It doesn't just say circumcision counts for nothing. It says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Wow. Paul is saying to those who might do the opposite, because this is what humans do, Paul says, you can't be uncircumcised. Paul says, no, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. If that's what you do, you bounce from that rule to this rule, you've also missed what I'm saying. Because neither one save you. And so we're free from even the rules that we might make. You know, it's so typical. We all want to do this. We, I think every, every believer fighting for holiness and struggling against their own sin longs to, to, to develop good spiritual disciplines, right? I have right here next to my notes a, a, a number of things which I've, what I, which I've written that kind of guide some of those things. But there's this tendency I've noticed in my whole Christian life to always... I always create what I consider at first to be good guidelines for myself to grow in Christ and how quickly they become new rules for me to keep. And we must always be on the watch to make sure that what we're driven by and what we're motivated by is pure and simple faith in the cross of Christ. We're free from the law. We're free from any rules we might make. We're free from the world and the flesh. Verse 14, which in the ESV here says, uh, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's a very weird thing for Paul to say. But he's, he's pointing to the cross as an instrument of death and what he's really saying, uh, the J.B. Uh, Phillips New Testament scholar, his personal his own translation of this verse says, which means that the world is a dead thing to me and I am a dead man to the world. Paul's no longer living to impress anyone. Not the world, not the Jews, not the church, but to live only for Christ. And lastly, we are free from, but we are free to this massive thing. We are free to be a new Creation, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. God is taking us from the reign and the rule of sin and Satan and death, 
And he has taken us out of this little box, these chains, this slavery, this mindset that we've been living in, this way of living uh, and a power that is over us. And he is placing us in a kingdom that is massive, a kingdom that is cosmic, a new creation that he is making and building. And it starts in us, but in the future it will involve and, and, and require the restoration of everything in the universe. And it's a place that he has made so that the freedom that we're beginning to feel now, we will eventually have in full flower, completely free at liberty and in communion with God. Amen. Fourth, the cross is glorious to reconcile. Sin has created a barrier that no good works can can penetrate. Our sin has put us at enmity, at war, rebellion against God. But the cross has broken that wall down. The cross is the bridge across the great divide. Paul says, uh, verse 15, which we've read many times already, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The true greatness of the cross is not merely all of the things that gets out of the way. It clears away our sin. It removes the penalty of our sin, death. It triumphs over our enemy, the devil. It fulfills the law. But it's what it gives us that is so precious. Because the gospel gives us God himself. It it doesn't just remove a bunch of things so we can be free to do our own thing. It removes those things so that we can relate to God in Christ. Pull forward here, Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, which makes this so strongly. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're brought to God. And being brought to God, we're brought together. We're united with God and we're, not, we're now united by faith with all those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. In a little while, we're going we're to celebrate the Lord's table. And for all who believe, all are welcome. There are no divisions at the Lord's tables, no hierarchy at the Lord's table, no, 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 uh, no decisions there. Just welcome acceptance into the beloved because of what Christ has done. The cross of Christ is glorious to reconcile. And it's true unity. It's not conformity. Christianity does not call us into a straitjacket. There's no stereotypical Christian, even though our culture might think that's the case. 
But there in fact isn't. Look around. Look how different we are. Look how, how different uh, uh, backgrounds we come from. Statuses, social situations, places all across the country doing all kinds of different things. Students and married couples and professors and teachers and engineers and, and uh, uh, just across the whole spectrum. We're not all alike one another and sometimes we kind of get on each other's nerves even. Amen? Be honest. Right? But in Christ, we're brothers and sisters. And in Christ, we are all sons of God. And God is making us. The next point, the, uh, the fifth thing is that the cross is glorious to renew. For Again, I think I've read this now five or six times. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We are born again, which is why we have faith. God draws himself to us through the gospel, and our hearts are awakened. And when our hearts are awakened, we are drawn magnetically to Christ. It's like our heart begins to beat for the first time. And as we begin to breathe, we naturally believe and have faith and long to know Christ being brought out of being dead in our trespasses and sins and into new life in Christ. We are all individually being made new. And we're being made new specifically in this way. We're being made new to be like Jesus. He is the universal model. The universal one into which we are being conformed. And in some way in which all of us in our individual personalities will still be who we are when God is done with us and yet be like Christ. We are being renewed from the inside out. So this is how that freedom that we were talking about is called, we're called to manifest it. Galatians 5, 13, 14. We are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul begins to unpack that, contrasting the works of the flesh, which are against that law, the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which explains and pictures that law, Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. It is as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The cross is glorious. The cross is glorious in all of these ways and in and many, many ways beyond which we could go and have time to go today. Finally, I want you to notice how personal all of this is for Paul. There's all these, he's very, very speaking in the first person. Verse 11, see with what, see with what large letters I am writing to you, Right? Verse 14, far be it from me to boast. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The gospel is personal to Paul. To Paul, Christ has died for him. Not just the generic sense of Christ has died 
for some sinners, or Christ has died for the church, but for Paul, being transformed by the grace of God, it is his boast. He doesn't just say uh, uh, um, to boast. He says, it's my boast. It's, it's mine. He owns it. It's, he's possessed by it, and he possesses it. He, takes, he lays full claim on the gospel as his, because Christ has died for me. It's not just personal in that way that it's, that it's down deep in his subconscious. It's very personal, first-person uh, events of the gospel that have transformed his life. But verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Uh, almost every scholar says he's undoubtedly referring to the physical scars on his body that he has sustained from preaching the gospel around the world. He lists them in one passage. It's about, I think it's three times stoned. Maybe one stoned, three times whipped, shipwrecked, right? Put on trial multiple times. And he identifies with Jesus because he's fought for the gospel and he's believed the gospel so much that it has cost him that much. But his brag is, what seems like a brag here is... um, is um, nuanced by the word, the marks. The marks is, is, is Greek stigmata, which are the, the marks from what I understand or the branding that would be placed upon a slave or even a soldier, perhaps, right? Um, anybody ever watch Gladiator, right? The one scene, in spite of all the fighting, like I can seem to watch all of it, but the one part I can't watch is when Russell Crowe, because I can't remember his Roman name, whatever it was, takes up a rock and tries to scratch off the tattoo on his arm, right? S-P-Q-R. Like, I don't know what it is. I cannot watch. That looks so incredibly painful to have to do. I can't do it. Paul is saying here that, that he's marked by metaphorically branded as a slave and a soldier of Christ. He owns the gospel, and the gospel of God completely owns him. I wonder today if you are here and you do not yet know this peace or this comfort, and all of this sounds odd, sounds so strange across faith, the very idea, the explosive idea that, you, that, 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 that God doesn't love you merely because you're nice, or that or that you're not okay merely because you're nice. Sounds so countercultural to think that you're made right only with God by a cross. And yet your conscience weighs heavy upon you, and your emptiness is all you feel because you know that nothing else is satisfying. You're, key, you're continuing, you're restless in your search for the thing that matters most. I invite you to lift up your eyes to Christ and to the gospel and to look on the cross. And believe for a moment that this word is for you if you are there on the edge of faith and doubt. And I wonder, believers, as we've gone through the book of Galatians, whether this has become personal and dear for you in this way that it has become for Paul. Do you find these truths precious? Do you you treasure this gospel? At some point, Uh, fellow brother and sister, this must not just be Paul's boast. 
This must not just be theology that we talk about from the pulpit. This must not be uh, my boast or Chris's boast or, or your small group leader's boast. The question is, is this your boast? Your one boast? My one boast? Our one boast? I want to encourage you, dear believer, today to rest actively in the gospel. And by actively, I do mean some action. All of faith, all of trust, all of boasting only in the gospel to make it, uh, to make it your own and to press in further in uh, to Christ. First, I just want to challenge you to take a verse from Galatians and make it your own. We've been in Galatians for a number of months. But let's not go, oh, we're through Galatians now. We're on to the next thing. But to take some verse, to some passage, to, to read it, to write it down, to type it out, to recite it, to pray over it, to meditate on it, to take it into your daily life as your comfort and your shield and even your weapon, your sword in your battle against sin. I have to say that for me, this, uh, this ser- uh, sermon series has been of immeasurable help, especially Galatians 2.20. I found myself at times going through some, uh, you know, just in my fight against sin and, my, and, and longing to pursue Christ and just all the busyness of life and not, not having all the time that I would like to, uh, to discipline myself and uh, do all the things that we often would like to do. I found myself even at the end of the day uh, laying in bed bed and thinking of Galatians 2.20 which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Believer, those words are for you. That for me is, is yours. In Luther's commentary on Galatians, which I've already talked to about, he goes on for pages about this verse. He goes on for pages about those two words, for me. And he, he encourages us in this way. He says, therefore, read these words, me, and for me, with great emphasis, and accustom yourself to accepting this me with a sure faith and applying it to yourself. Do not doubt that you belong to the number of those who speak this me. Christ did not love only Peter and Paul and give himself for them, but the same grace belongs and comes to us as to them. Therefore, we are included in this me. So lift up some part of, uh, of Galatians and carry it with you and understand It's for me. It is yours if you are united by faith with Jesus. Amen? Secondly, especially before we are inundated with all the sounds of the season, find a song. Take your phone. Maybe you already do this. Take your phone. Take Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Google, whatever it is. CDs. (laughs) <laughs> create a playlist that, 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 that has songs on it, not as a good work, because you're singing it all by yourself. No one is seeing you there, right? 
Take a great hymn, The Solid Rock, or What Wondrous Love Is This, and make it your own. That brings the gospel just to your heart because when you're singing, it's way more than reading. When you're singing, and I mean sing, like, like learn to sing. Learn, uh, don't, don't just kind of lip sync the words. That's cheating. Mouth the words, pronounce the words, get them out and sing the gospel and get it into your heart. For me, this too has been a Martin Luther thing. I've been listening to A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which I shared with someone and they weren't very, very impressed. It was like, yeah, that's kind of a, not a great tune. <laughs> it is pretty Germanic. It's not real pretty. And it has these really long verses. But when you understand the gospel, that Christ is our refuge from sin, Satan, and death, and even our own need to impress or to save ourselves, Then you can begin to sing, indeed, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And run to that, run to the cross, O love that will not let me go. Whatever it is, nothing but the blood. Third and last today, as we close, I invite you believers to take this action that we all do every Sunday, which is a glorious picture of what the cross has accomplished which is to take the Lord's Supper. Amen. This is for all who are united by faith with Christ. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, all are one in Christ. This is a meal that's reserved for believers. If you do not yet believe, I urge you to look to Christ, to lift up your eyes, Believers, as you come, as you know, please take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine as your conscience guides. And lastly, there are pastors and prayer responders in the back that are available to talk about all that the cross of Christ means and to pray with you uh, whatever you're struggling with, believer or unbeliever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the grace of God in Christ. We approach you with thanksgiving. As we go into a week dedicated to the very idea of thanksgiving, may our giving of thanks not be abstract. May it not merely be the material things of this earth, but God, may our hearts be filled with gratitude for the glorious cross of Jesus. We thank you for it, and we rejoice in it. And we pray now your grace and your mercy and your peace be upon your people. In Christ's name, amen.